Y'all pray with me and then we'll begin with 1 Timothy chapter 4. Father, we want to begin this morning declaring that your name is above every name, above the name of any leader, of anybody that claims to fame, of any family name, your name is greater. And we trust you today. We want to pray for the civil leaders, the government leaders, the uh, leaders of the schools and these communities outside and around Greenville, some of these smaller communities. We want to pray that and ask you to create in these communities a, a peaceful setting and environment so that the gospel goes forward. There's too many to name. There's too many people that I don't know their names but city councils, school boards, mayors, police departments, police chiefs, fire departments, that you would move in such a way that there is peace so that the gospel moves forward in those communities. And Father, we want to pray also for another church in our area, for Highland Terrace Baptist Church, as they are without a lead preacher right now. And God, we ask that you would send them a man who will preach the word in season and out of season that will guard the deposit entrusted to that church and to him. And we pray that any opportunity you give us to work with them so that the gospel moves forward in this area that uh, we would be faithful with it. We're thankful for this time in your word this morning. I pray that our hearts would be attentive and encouraged by truth and then you would guard our hearts from believing any lies. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, any time that I get opportunity to preach, typically that's uh, anywhere from three to five times a year here, I have committed to preaching through the pastoral epistles, these pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And um, started about two years ago with 1 Timothy chapter 1, and now we're at 1 Timothy chapter 4. And as I've had opportunity to preach, we've worked through the first three chapters of 1 Timothy, and now we're at four. And I want to do just a quick recap of the context of where we are. Having been in Hebrews, as a church, having already been through John, uh, I want to kind of recap where we've been so that we'll know what's going on <clears throat> and how we got here to chapter four. In chapter one of 1 Timothy, Paul is writing this letter to a young preacher, younger preacher, not a really young guy, but younger than Paul somebody that he's invested in, someone that he's poured into, somebody that he's been a part of sending out. And in chapter one, he tells Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus, he says to him, look, there's gonna be people in your church, there's gonna be men who have positions of influence and they're gonna teach and speak some things and this is what they're gonna do. They're, they're gonna speak and teach in such a way that they gather a following and that they be impressive. That's really all they're about. They, they may even speak with some knowledge. They may even have some theology. They may use scripture. But the thing that they're gonna miss is that they're not gonna love people with the gospel. And so in chapter one, that's his warning to Timothy. You tell the men who don't love the people with the gospel to leave. Stop doing that or leave. Trevin Wax is a young pastor and author that explains that what is that loving people with the gospel? What is the gospel? And he explains it this way. He says it's like a stool. 
Now, <clears throat> this is a stool. This is a four-legged stool, but he explains it in this way, that the gospel is like a three-legged stool. So just imagine if one of these legs isn't here. And he says the gospel is a story. <clears throat> it's a backstory of God's people. Most of this Old Testament that we refer to, it's a story of God redeeming his people. The Bible is that. It's a story. It's also, secondly, it's a pronouncement that Jesus is the redeemer of his people, ultimately and finally and completely. And so there's this good news announcement that's the gospel. And then the third part of what holds a stool of the gospel up is that it's a community of people. It is a people. And any time one of those legs is weak, what happens? The stool just gets weak, or maybe even it falls over. And what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to Timothy is, these guys that are speaking with great knowledge, they're even using these Old Testament genealogies. They've got charts that tra trace their heritage. They, they know a lot about the story, but they are not preaching the good news about Jesus. They are not loving people with this pronouncement that everyone's a sinner and that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. They're leaving that part out. And they just want to kind of pontificate about all the story that they know. And they go on and on. And they're trying to gain a following. And, and he tells Timothy, they're going to raise up in your church and you need to tell them to quit. That you love people with all three aspects of the gospel. And then in chapter 2 and 3, he moves into church order. This is how the church is to be ordered. This is how it's to look. This is how the church moves. And he starts with, in chapter 2, saying men are supposed to lead in prayer. Men are supposed to raise holy hands and pray. Pray for the civil leaders so that there will be peace and so that the gospel will move out into a peaceful time. So you pray for the people that lead you in your community. And that women should be silent in church. Now, I said this when I preached through this the first time. Let me take the grenade and put the pen back in real quick. When he says men should be the ones teaching and speaking with authority in the church, women should be silent, in that context, most of the women who were coming to church, many of the women who were coming to church were also involved politically in the community, and they would show up dressed in gold, dressed, in, dressed to impress, and were using church to push their political agenda because they were also leaders in the community. And so they would come and, and try and be impressive with their speech. And the second thing the women would do is they would use church to find out the gossip in the grapevine. And what Paul is saying to Timothy here is, tell the women this. Shh. This is not your Facebook social club. That's not what the church is. This isn't a place to get caught up on what's going on in the community. This isn't a place to just get the gossip. And then in chapter 3, we see where he says the church is to be led by elders and deacons. They're mentioned together. They lead together. And qualified men preach and pray, and qualified men manage the household of God. And they do that together. And in the last verse of chapter 3, he says, the reason that I'm giving you all this order that you should, men should lead in prayer, you ought to pray for your community. These qualified men should be leading the church. The reason is so that Jesus would be believed on in the world. That's the goal. It's not that we can say, look, we're, we've got the right order, or we're ordered right, or we're doing it right. That's not the goal. 
The goal is you do this by his design and you trust it, and Jesus will be believed on in this world, and that this gospel will go out. That's why we pray for peace. That's why we pray for our community. That's why we're led by elders and deacons, so that the gospel would go out and it would move forward. And so now here we are in chapter four. We're gonna look at the first five verses this morning. I wanna give you just a quick roadmap of where we're headed. The first five verses of chapter four, we're gonna use a satellite of Matthew 24 and then 2 Peter 3, and then we're gonna end in Romans 4. So don't get too bogged down in the map, but know that's where we're going, and I think that's the only places that we're going. So let's start, let's just read these first five verses and then we'll see what Paul has to say now to Timothy. Verse one, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse four, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, let's start with this first phrase that he uses in, in verse one. And I wanna look at this uh, and unpack this a little bit and then it'll take us to Matthew 24. The spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Stop right there. What does he mean when he says the Spirit expressly says? Some people think that maybe the Spirit just showed up in a special revelation to Paul. Or maybe the Spirit showed up in some special revelation to one of the guys that Paul was leading. And that very well may be the case. I don't think that's what happened, but it could have. We see that happening in Acts, where the Spirit expressly says things to men and reveals himself and speaks clearly. However, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think what Paul is referencing is, I think he's talking about Jesus. Jesus said that people would leave. Jesus was very clear with the disciples that people are gonna leave. A mark for this age will be that people will leave. So turn to Matthew 24, and we're gonna look at what Jesus said specifically. Now, as you're turning to Matthew 24, what I wanna give you is a little bit of context of what's happening here with Jesus in Matthew 24. He's about to tell the disciples some things that are really going to unnerve them. And you have to kind of read between the lines of the story. You have to climb into the story, as we say so often here. You have to climb into the story to kind of see what's happening, what the surroundings are, in order to see that what Jesus is telling them about this latter age, what Jesus is gonna say to these guys is really gonna be unnerving. It's not, um, on the surface, real encouraging news. It's not sunshine and rainbows. It's not really necessarily what they wanna hear, okay? So just know that that's, that's where we're headed. They are apparently walking around Jerusalem and they are moving in and about the city and in verse one of Matthew 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away. 
and when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, the, the account of Mark tells us what they were doing was bragging on the temple. They were saying, look how beautiful the stones are, how big this building is. Look how impressive this temple that was built by our people. Look how impressive it is. And so they were kind of bragging on the temple in front of Jesus. And, but Jesus answered them in verse two, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. So <clears throat> I can't help but think that these disciples are fishing for a compliment from Jesus. Remember, this temple is what their people had built. This is where they had met God. This is where they knew that they could connect with Yahweh. They, they knew that if we went to the temple, that's where our sins were covered. That's where we were made right. The temple kind of was the place, listen, that made everything okay. Well, this temple was beautiful, and we worked hard, and we built it. And this is the place where we knew God was, and it was okay this is the place where things were reconciled and restored for them. And their assumption is, man, this thing's gonna be here forever. And I can't help but think that they're fishing for a compliment. Hey, you know, we built this thing for God. Hey, you're God. So what do you, what do you think? He says, you see all this? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna destroy it. Wait, what? you're going to do what? We're fishing for a compliment. We're trying to kind of figure out here what, what you're going to do with this kingdom you've been talking about. And I just wonder if they're thinking, look, fishing for maybe, are you going to add on to it? Like this new kingdom that you've been talking about when you reign? Are, are we going to get a porch in the back where we can hang out with you? You know, this is the same guys that asked just a few days earlier who they were arguing about who would be the greatest in this new kingdom. And so they're probably thinking, look, I'm, I'm gonna get a pretty good place here in this temple. And Jesus is probably gonna put a throne in there and he's gonna reign and he'll kick everybody's rear end from this place. And we'll be here with him and we'll get a back porch and we'll put a little fire pit out there and we'll hang out with our king because we've been so faithful to follow him. And I'm sure that's kind of what they may be thinking. I mean, that's all they could have been assuming is that this temple was gonna stand forever and Jesus said, yeah, you know what? There's not gonna be anything left of that when I'm done with it. And what he's saying to them is, this is a new age. This is a new season. You remember Ben's, if you've been here the last few months, Ben's beautiful artwork that he put up here on the screen. So clear and easy to understand his timeline, the hen scratch. And what he's talking about is, you remember Ben had on the timeline, the cross, right down the middle. And then at the very end was the second advent. You have his coming, and you have the cross, and the second advent. And what Jesus is talking about is this season on this side of that slide that Ben drew. Jesus is saying, no, no more temple. I'm gonna reign. And I'm not building you guys a back porch. I'm gonna reign and I'm gonna be invisible, 
My kingdom will be a, an invisible kingdom in the hearts of men, but very visible in this. I'm going to build my church on people like Peter. When he said, I'm going to build my house upon the rock, Peter's name meaning rock. I'm going to build my church. That's how my kingdom will be visible in this age on this side of the slide. That's, that's a, it's a new day, guys. And I'm going to be reigning, but you're not going to see me. But you are going to see my church. And one of the things that I think is just so cool about how unnerved these disciples must have been is so many of us have been unnerved recently by the truths of Scripture. Maybe, maybe it's this doctrine of election. Maybe it's these warnings from the Hebrews preacher that just make you go, well, man, I don't, that doesn't feel good to me. That doesn't make me feel better. That doesn't, like this temple made these guys feel like everything was gonna be okay. I mean, there's, there's things where you just don't feel okay about some of these truths that are coming out of the word. And that's what the disciples are doing here in verse three. Look at verse three of Matthew 24. He sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Here's what they're saying. Look, you just rocked our world. You're telling us the temple's gonna go down. We're very unnerved. And even Mark's account said this was just probably two or three disciples that came to him and said, look, we gotta know it's gonna be okay. Help us here. Give us some info. Can you help us know that this is gonna be okay? Because you're telling us you're gonna trash everything we've known about what we see here on earth in God's kingdom, and you're gonna lay it to waste. And so can you tell us, you're coming like when you do that and you, you're saying you're gonna leave us and you're gonna die, and then you're gonna go away and you're gonna wipe the temple out. You're coming right back, right? Like, you're gonna, you are gonna come right back. Surely, that's what they're asking here. When, when will these things take place? When will this happen? Kind of, okay, can you give us some more details? Because between verse three, verse two and verse three, there, there's bound to have been at least an hour that's passed because they are at the temple and now they're at the Mount of Olives. And I want, I want you to climb into this story and, and what may help you is Ben and I and Derek Thornton made this walk. We walked from where the temple is to the top of the Mount of Olives and it took about an hour-ish. You've got on the east side of the city, the Mount of Olives, and you have to go from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley. If you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, you know, where you see the gold dome, uh, most likely that was taken from the east on the Mount of Olives, those pictures where you can see the whole city of Jerusalem. It takes about an hour. Now, it took us about an hour. <laughs> to walk it. We had paved streets to walk on. Uh, the Kidron Valley is not so much a valley as a glorified ditch. It's just not really long and really deep and really wide. It's a low spot outside the east side of the city. 
And then you get to the Mount of Olives, you go right past the Garden of Gethsemane, and then you go straight up. And I'll never forget that walk because I had an upper respiratory infection and it about killed me. And it's the only reason that Ben and Derek beat me to the top. <laughs> I was hurting, but it took about an hour. And so from the time where Jesus says, yeah, you see that temple? I I'm gonna do away with it. I imagine these disciples just looked at each other like, what is he talking about? So they walk in my mind, and I imagine just this silent, hour-long walk up to the Mount of Olives, and they go, Jesus, you gotta help us here. Just like many of us have struggled with truths and doctrines that come out of Scripture, these implications of this three-legged stool that are hard and difficult to get our heart around and our head around, and what we're saying is, we just really need to know that it's going to be okay. When I think about the doctrine of election, what do I do with my kids? I really need to know that it's going to be okay. What do I do about people who say they believed at one time and now don't? I mean, what do I do about that in election? What do I do with this stuff? I mean, these truths, these warnings of to find rest and trust Jesus and be obedient and endure to the end... How do I know it's going to be okay in the meantime? How do I know that I know that I know? Where am I going to get this comfort from? And that's what the disciples are doing here, just like we do. Tell us, what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? You're coming right back, right? And this is Jesus' answer. And this is the answer that as a pastor and the pastors of our church, this is our answer to your angst and to your yearning for is it going to be okay? And here is Jesus' answer. See that no one leads you astray. Okay, this is going to be bookend with two things that we're going to look at. See that no one leads you astray. So he starts with, don't leave the church. Okay, how do we know it's going to be okay? Okay, here, Jesus says to us, don't leave. Don't be led away. That's how you know it's going to be okay. Don't leave. He goes on. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Don't be unnerved, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Remember the farthest side of this slide. It's not done yet. I haven't completed everything yet. I'm still reigning. You won't see me, but the visible will be the church. It's not over yet. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. It's gonna be a hard time, a hard, difficult season. But don't leave, and don't let anybody talk you into leaving. Stay. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and they're gonna put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Okay, Jesus, we gotta know this is gonna be okay. You're coming right back, right? No, they're gonna kill you. What? Yeah, they're gonna kill you. But don't leave. Trust me, trust me, 
And then many will fall away, verse 10. Then many will fall away. Then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's the bookends on God's answer to Jesus. How do we know it's going to be all right? Don't let anybody lead you away. And whoever endures to the end will be saved. That's the bookends for his answer to how are we gonna know this is gonna be all right? How do we stay in it? Don't let anybody lead you away and stay all the way to the end. Stay all the way to the end and don't quit. That's the bookend answer. Don't be led astray. Many will fall away. Love is gonna grow cold. This warm, fuzzy that many have, some of them will grow cold. It won't be warm anymore. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You know, we want so many things for our children. We want so many things for our lost friends. We want them, we beg them, we want them to start this journey of faith. Start it, begin, come, profess Christ, start, begin. It's a good thing. We want so many things for our kids. We want them to begin to believe in Jesus. They want them to profess that and be baptized. We want to see the genesis of faith in our children. We want that so bad. And as I read passages like this, I wonder if we shouldn't balance it with stay, finish, endure. As much as we've wanted you to begin, we want you to keep going. And so the words to my children lately have changed. And yes, I want you to begin a genesis of faith. Yes, I want you to be baptized and in the church. I'm training you in truth. I want that. And I want you to keep going. And the propensity for you, young child, is going to be to leave. The propensity for you is going to believe everything but what is preached. Everything else but what I teach you out of here. You're going to have a propensity to leave, and there's going to be people that tell you this is not true, or they're going to elevate another lie to you. You'll be surrounded by it. You'll be inundated with it. Don't believe it, and don't leave. Stay. And so I wonder if we shouldn't balance Yes, we want there to be a genesis. Yes, we want there to be a journey that begins in our children, but just as much so should we be teaching them about endurance and balancing that. Stay, don't leave, don't quit. Jesus is telling these guys, look, this is gonna be a marker for the age. There's gonna be all kinds of trials. There's gonna be wars. There's gonna be earthquakes. There's gonna be birth pains. It's gonna be difficult. People are gonna hate you for following me. Some, of, some people will die because they believe in me. And you guys are one of them. And another marker of this, faith, of this journey, of this age, another marker is that some people bail out and don't, don't make it to the end. That's just a marker. People leave. And when people leave, it can make us think, what's wrong with us? What, what, what's going on around here? I heard that this family left or that family left or maybe you hear about an old college friend that used to be faithful and professing and then you hear, man, they left. Well, it kind of makes you question. This is troubling. What happened? What's wrong with us? Why did they leave? 
What's going on around here? Is something fishy? Is something weird? Because somebody left. It hurts, it's confusing, it's discouraging. That was my friend. We are horizontally connected in relationship. That was my dad, that was my cousin, that was my mom. That was my friend. And there's now saying, no, I'm out. I'm just, I've had friends who have left the faith because they were tired. That's all they had. I, I'm just tired of having to have faith. And I'm what is that? What is that? What happened? I'm just tired, just done. And, and it can leave us troubled and questioning what we're a part of. But no. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, that's going to happen. That's a marker of the age. And so this is how I want that to encourage us. Could it be that when people leave, when your friend, when anyone leaves the faith and they bail, could it be that it's a mark that we're holding true? Could it be a mark that our Bible is true? Could it be that we are holding truth and that we're holding to a Bible that is true? Jesus said it. The Spirit said it. Paul said it. People are going to leave. People are going to walk away from the faith. Some people are going to leave real subtly. Some people are going to leave real abruptly. Either way, there's many ways to leave. There's many ways to fall away. People are going to leave. And could it be that it affirms us and encourages us? that what we're a part of is really true? Maybe it should actually alarm us if we had never experienced the heartache of someone falling away. This year, I'm uh, committed to reading after an old dead guy, and his name is J.C. Ryle. He was the Archbishop of Liverpool back in the 1800s, died in 1900. And... One of the coolest things about this guy is that he was converted in the first 10 minutes, the first time he ever stepped into a church during the public reading of Scripture, and they were reading Ephesians 2. One of the most concise and thorough explanations of the gospel, Ephesians 2. He walks in, his dad had a banking fortune, and they lost it all. And guess where they went next? To church. And guess what? The bishop was reading Ephesians 2. And guess what? J.C. Ryle hears that being read, and he says God spiritually awakened his heart to the reality of Jesus. And he's converted in the first 10 minutes, stepping foot into the church, hearing what? The Bible being read. It's true. And this is what he says about people leaving and the discouragement of this age that we're talking about, that Jesus is talking about, the discouraging things that happen, the tribulation and the trial. Listen to J.C. Ryle. I believe that the widespread unbelief, indifference towards the gospel and the church, formalism, wickedness, which are to be seen throughout Christendom, are only what we are taught to expect in God's word. Troublous times. I love that word. 
troubleous. Departures from the faith, evil men waxing worse and worse, love growing cold are things distinctly predicted in our Bible. So, far from making me doubt the truth of Christianity, they help to confirm my faith. As melancholy and sorrowful as the sight is of someone leaving, if I did not ever see it, I would think the Bible wasn't true. So we ought to take as melancholy and as sad and sorrowful as it is, we should take this leaving and this bailing and this growing cold and this what happened, we should know, okay, Jesus said this would happen. It's a part of the age. It's a trial and it hurts and it's discouraging and it's confusing. And we should say, okay, he said this would happen. He's right. He's true. I'm staying. And the second way this should encourage us, and I don't, we don't get many opportunities to speak this to you as elders, but you know what? Some people come back. They do. We've walked with three or four folks this, this year of them coming back to us via discipline, via the Spirit, via grace, whatever you want to say it, via that discipline process, who have come back to the elders and said, hey, look, I got to make things right. I missed the church. I got to get back in. I, I. They've come back sorrowful. They've come back repentant. They've come back uh, hating their sin and wanting to reconcile and wanting to uh, be indignant about clearing their name. They, they do. They come back after that discipline process, and now they're coming back, and we're walking through it right now, and it's so encouraging. And you know, the whole time I'm sitting there going, I can't believe this. But you know what I think? This Bible's true. It's true, and he's good, and he's gracious. And if you trust it and walk in it, some people come back, and it's good. And it keeps you going, and it helps you when you know that, that some people come back, that when they leave, you know the gospel's big enough. We've got to trust it. We've got to stay. We can't leave. We've got to stay. They might come back. For his glory and the beauty of the bride, they might come back. The other thing that I want this to create in us is an urgency. So we're to be encouraged when we see people bail, fall away, leave. But we're also to be kind of impatient about it. And this, this is what I mean by that. I mean urgency. I, I want us to be impatient. Have you ever been encouraged to be impatient in church? Be impatient about this, okay? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to see this passage. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter is talking about us living in an age of waiting. We are waiting for promises to be fulfilled. And he's talking about as we're living in this age of waiting, we're waiting on these promises to be fulfilled. He says something in verse 14. 2 Peter 3, 14. He's talking about all these promises and that the day of the Lord will come. There's coming a time, right side of the screen, remember, on the timeline. There's coming a time where all promises will be fulfilled. He will be visible again, and he will fulfill every promise. 
And so we're in this age of waiting, and, and I want you to see what he says here in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, waiting for what? Promises to be fulfilled. Since you're in this age of waiting where people leave, where people hate you, and some people die, since you're waiting, be diligent. Here, stay. Don't quit. Don't bail out. Don't leave. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And what he is saying there is, he comes back to fulfill and he is revealed again himself. Be found in the church at peace with one another. Be found in him, trusting him without spot or blemish. How do you, how do you be without spot or blemish? There's only one way, in Jesus. So how do you be found when he comes back without spot or blemish? You be, be found trusting in him. You see it? Don't quit trusting him. Don't quit. Don't bail on his church and don't quit trusting and believing in him alone. And then he goes on. Verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. The patience of the Lord is salvation. Anytime he doesn't come back, anytime he's waiting to come back and we're waiting and he hadn't come yet, it means there's more opportunity for salvation. More, more opportunity for someone else to come in and be in the church and believe and there's more opportunity for, get this, somebody to come back. And so, this patience that he has should create an impatience at us. This is, this is what we're pining for. We want, his, we want his promises to be fulfilled. We want him to come back and make it all right and take away this tribulation and this pain and this confusion. We want him to take it away. Just do away with it. And we also want people to get back here. That's our prayer. Our impatience with one another is don't leave. Don't go anywhere. And, and if you do, if you wander, if you backslide, if you get away, we say, hey, get back here. Hurry. The, the age is going to be fulfilled. Get back here. Don't bail. Come back. Get back here. I'm not going to be patient with you. Get back here. And we say to Jesus, come, get back here. Get, get back here. In the same breath. We pine for him to make it right. And we pine for people to get back here. And that's our movement and that's our stance. It's impatient. This is one way for you. It's okay for you to be impatient. For those that have left, get back with each other. Don't you leave. <laughs> Back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Two more things and then we're done. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Anytime anyone leaves, anytime there is any sort of departure from the faith, anytime they 
fall away is what the Greek uses over and over, falling away. It's always because of a lie. Departure equals a lie. Anytime somebody leaves and quits, it's because they're believing a lie. They're believing in something either added to or something that diminishes the gospel. Even, even using a half-truth. It's people who use some scripture, but then they twist it or add to. You see how fuzzy and complicated this can get? Uh, they, can, they can tell you a half-truth, and it can cause you to bail. Just a half-truth. And these pastoral letters in 1 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy and in Titus. I, I want to look real quick. I just want you to hear some things that aren't there. Now, letters to pastors, right? Pastoral epistles. Pastors, preachers. This is who you're to be. This is how it's supposed to play out in your church. Here's what's not in there. Make sure visitors feel really welcome. Make sure you get as many people in the building as possible. That's not in here. Now, hang on. Those are good things. I'm not saying <laughs> those are bad things. I, it's, it's not a bad thing to make visitors feel welcome. We should be a hospitable people. But preeminently, what Paul says to the pastor, to keep people from falling away, which is a theme throughout the pastoral letters, it's void of make sure people feel welcome. Make sure that as you preach and you speak, listen, make sure that as you preach and you speak, you consider what will keep them around. What can you say, what can you do, what can you wear that'll make sure they just kind of hang out and stay? So you do all that you can to make them feel comfortable and don't confuse them. Don't give them anything difficult because if you were to hashtag right now the word leaving on Twitter, you're going to get 50 things and everything about leaving is bailing on something that's difficult. I'm leaving a marriage. I'm leaving a school. I'm leaving on vacation. I'm leaving a job. If it's difficult, I'm out. So, there's nothing in these pastoral letters that says, hey, don't throw it out there too hard because if you do, somebody might leave. That's not in there. Make sure you season your worship music in such a way that it'll be attractive. Not in here. All of those things can be good to sing in such a way that people want to sing with you. That's not a bad thing. To preach in such a way that people will want to listen. That's not a bad thing. But the thread that runs through these pastoral epistles is you make sure you preach the truth and you make sure that you're saying true things that connect to more true things from the story to the pronouncement of Jesus to community. You make sure you say things that are true and you make sure that no one's telling a half-truth, no one's outright lying, and that no one's believing a lie. That's the job of the elder and the pastor and the preacher. What are you believing? What are you hearing? What am I saying? That's the angst for the preacher. If you ever hear us kind of whining about how sober and difficult this is, it's because of this. What are y'all believing? 
And I got to make sure everything I say is true so that you don't hear it wrong or walk in it wrong. And it's important. And it's the thread that runs through these pastoral letters. You be careful. This is where we're going next week. Verses 6 to the end of the chapter of chapter 4. It's the remedy for lies. It's the remedy for people leaving. It's be truthful. Over and over and over, Paul tells these pastors, preach the gospel in season and out of season. The gospel will expose errors. I cannot tell you how many times in the last 10 years, because I have sat under expository preaching from several men in this church who expose the passage instead of taking a topic and importing it, how many errors in my life have been exposed about my past, even my spiritual history and my heritage, even my faith journey heritage, how many errors have been exposed just because we go verse by verse? You gotta stay there. Preach the gospel in season and out of season. And then the, lastly, error number one, lie number one, Paul gives it right here. Lie number one is requirements. Requirements is lie number one. Look at the passage one more time. Verse three, those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He's talking about anybody that says to the people of God, anybody that says to your church, there is something you should be doing or there's something you should be staying away from that will enhance your belief in Jesus. It'll enhance our walk with Jesus. If you will not eat those foods or not drink that drink or, you know what? Don't get married. It would be better. You will enhance your faith if you make these requirements. And Paul says it's a lie. It's a lie. Requirements are a lie. Abstaining from food and marriage are things that God created are good in order to make yourself feel about, better about yourself. That's all that really is. And that's all these men are doing. In order to make myself feel better about this journey that's hard and difficult, I'm going to do some things that I feel will make me feel better about this walk with Jesus. There is no moral code that I can keep that will enhance what Jesus did for me. I just want to say that again. There is no moral code that I can keep that will enhance or improve upon what Jesus did for me on the cross. I can't make it better. I can't enhance it. I can't improve on what he did for me. His atonement covered my sin. Now, let me turn the coin over. Any moral, ethical code that I live by is out of a grateful heart that can't believe he saved the foremost of sinners. I, I can't believe it. I'm so amazed by it that I want to live in every way I can to make his name great and to keep the purity of the bride. That's why I pay attention to how I live. Not so that I can somehow enhance or improve on what he's already done for me. Do you see it? Now, this is a real subtle move. Some of y'all are looking at me like, what in the world are you talking about? It's subtle. 
And you have to dig down in your heart and search your heart to make sure, okay, why are we not doing this? Why are we abstaining from this? Why are we going here and moving this way? Why are we making this decision? If there's anything in your heart that says, you know, this pleases God when I do this. This, this enhances his love for me. Whoa. The only reason he loves me is because of Jesus. That's how he loves me, through Jesus. And it's a love, Paul says in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, that was poured out. He, he just poured it out. It didn't need to trickle for me. It needed to pour out. It needed to overflow for me. And it does overflow because he sees Jesus. So I can't improve on it. And so anytime, listen, there's the warning for this morning. Anytime somebody, you hear, a, hey, you need, you need to do this, or I wouldn't do that, talk through it. Why are you talking about it? What are you? What's the motive behind any sort of requirement as we move and live as the body? Be wary. This can look very noble. It can appear to have very holy intentions, and we must be leery of the measured and regulated requirements of walking in the faith. Here's the requirement, and it's in Romans 4, 5. Just listen. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, you could insert the one who does not keep a moral code so that they'll be righteous. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him righteous. The one who doesn't work but trusts Jesus, righteous. Righteous. It's almost as if I hear Paul saying here in verse 5, of 1 Timothy chapter 4. The one who keeps believing Romans 4, 5 to the end will be saved. The one who keeps trusting in Jesus alone will be saved. Even amidst all these trials, even amidst people leaving, people being hated, people being confused, people lying, that's gonna happen. But in the midst of all of it, I'm not leaving. Because Jesus said, you be careful. Don't be led astray. And the one who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 24, 13. And I hear it coming out of Paul in these letters. The one who believes Romans 4, 5 to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would add to the reading and preaching of your word by your spirit. And that as we come to the table of uh, communion this morning, that you would uh, allow us a clarity in our heart and our mind this morning as we search our heart. That we would be ready to confess and be ready to repent and enjoy the truth of Romans 4. That there's nothing I can do to earn it or keep it. But I will work hard to stay in it. We're grateful for Jesus and we're grateful for truth. Keep us from believing lies. In Jesus' name, amen. As we take the supper this morning, I feel like there's two things that we need to embrace and consider um, before we take the supper. And... 
the first thing is that we, we have to learn to embrace suffering or else we'll inevitably fall away. In light of what we just heard, um, consider 1 Peter 5. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. As we talk about suffering and the possibility of falling away and people turning on you because of your faith and you hear the disciples being told by Jesus, no, you're going to die for your faith as well. I would imagine for some of us sitting here, that would create a certain level of anxiety. And this passage says that anxiety is a form of pride because you humble yourself before God rather than carrying that anxiety. Anxiety is a form of pride because you humble yourself, you humble yourself before God rather than carrying that anxiety. It goes on to say, a lot of what Brad preached this morning. Be sober-minded. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing is I want us to consider this morning as we take the supper is that we have to learn to embrace suffering as part of our faith or else we will likely fall away from that faith. The second thing I want to consider is in Romans 8. And it's about the love of God. Brad touched on it this morning. But I want us to see that God's love is so much sweeter when we realize it's not something we can earn. If it's something that we can earn, I mean, Romans talks a lot about, well, it's just wages. If you earn something and you get something in return, it's, it's wages. But we're, what we're seeing is the wages of sin is death and that God loves us while we're still sinners. And so as we take this supper, I want us to do so really understanding the love of God. I mean, all that we've heard this morning, this encouragement to persevere to the end, we couldn't do that without the love of God. So I want us to read these verses in light of the fact we can't earn his love, but he gives it to us freely in Christ alone. It's only in Christ. That's why we take the supper in remembrance of Christ. Next time Christ takes this supper, it will be with us in eternity. That's something we, we there's anticipation in the supper. We're looking forward to that. And Romans 8 says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So our hope to be without spot or blemish is in Christ who died and was raised from the dead. And he's now interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, no, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in them, in the suffering, because of the love of God, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I love that. It's like naming all these things and, or anything else in all of creation that I may have forgotten, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we take the supper, we take the Lord's direction in it. And he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So rather than listening to a sermon and saying, Oh, we can do that. I can do that. I'm going to leave here. I can muster that. I got that. Every time we finish a sermon, we go to the table and we say, we proclaim Christ because there's no hope outside of that. We proclaim Christ and Christ alone. Just like every other week, just like every other response to a sermon, completely dependent upon Christ. That's where we are right now. Completely. There is no persevering outside of Christ. There is no finishing well outside of Christ. So we take this completely and totally dependent upon him. And indeed, we can say without blemish because of our Savior who is without blemish. Take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, I am thankful uh, that there is no other fount. I'm thankful that as, as we worship in song, that we proclaim truths that are found in the Word, that um, we don't have a, a choice between a handful of different ways to you but it's only Christ. So I pray that those here would find that and, and stay on that path and persevere to the end. Lord, as I sit this morning and I, I hear a message that is sobering, to say the least, gosh, I, I just pray for perseverance in this body. I pray that none would fall away. I pray that none would perish. I pray that we would all finish well. I pray that we would learn to embrace suffering, and I pray that we would depend completely on the love that we have from you that we can't earn. Lord, I'm thankful for the message you gave to Brad today. I pray that as we continue in worship, we would do so wholeheartedly, and uh, that you would be pleased and glorified um, in what we give, and in the hearts behind it, and in what we proclaim. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like I should say, if you're, if you're visiting here, welcome. I, <laughs> We really do care about you. It's not, you just, I do need to say though, if you're visiting or have been visiting, we're more concerned that you're believing the truth than we are that you're comfortable. I think that's the right way to say that. Um, we are glad you're here. But man, we're more concerned about staying than we are even the coming. <laughs> And so I hope that we're all thinking in terms of stay, stay, stay. And I just wanted to read one more passage to you, and then I'm closing. 
Uh, skipping ahead to where we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many. You've professed Jesus and many people saw it and witnessed it. Great. Now fight to stay in it. And the only way you fight to stay in it is what Scott just said. This supper just taught us again. It's only because of him that we have the strength to fight. That we have the strength to keep on. But don't stop fighting. This is going to be a hard age to have faith in. That's what Jesus said. Until he comes back, it's going to be hard to have faith in him and keep it. Keep fighting. That's the encouragement. Help each other. Peter says, encourage one another. Exhort one another. Keep fighting. Don't quit. Don't stop. Let me pray and then I'll dismiss us. Father, thank you for what you're doing in this body, uh, refining and um, retuning us in so many ways and, and just with our families and with the children that you're bringing here and the different families that you're intersecting us with. I pray that you give us wisdom as, um, as we lead these families, as the elders and deacons of this church lead these families uh, in covenant. I pray you'd give us the wisdom that's from above. And... Um, we pray that you'd give us rest today on this Sabbath day, that you'd give us a real rest, that we would remember that our true rest is in Jesus, that we would trust and remember that again today, and that it would, it would smooth out the rest of this day for us, that we would enjoy one another and encourage one another to stay in it and fight, all the while resting, knowing that the cross completed so many things for us. All for us it completed and that you're still going to complete and that you're coming back and help us remember the age that we're in and to rest in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.